morning. Make sure that I'm, yep. Uh, <laughs> it's relevant to the sermon. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, read me Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be continuing uh, to look in the book of Acts in our series to Jerusalem where we see uh, what happens when the Holy Spirit mobilizes his church in a city. Uh, and so we're going to continue to see that uh, as we continue to uh, look at and wonder about what church God is calling us to be as we, as we continue to look at uh, who God is calling us to be and what God is calling us to do. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 uh, this morning. I, uh, on Friday, uh, was sitting down to eat lunch and uh, God just gave me an overwhelming sense of joy about the future of Freedom Fellowship. I, I wasn't... Uh, I didn't plan it. It's not like uh, I was praying specifically for the church or, or had anything like that, but God uh, provided me with this overwhelming sense of joy about our future as a body of believers. And, and, and so I know that God has uh, some incredible ministry laid up for us, that we have uh, so many incredible things that we're going to be able to do um, by the power of God. And so um, as we read this text this morning, as we apply it, um, let's prayerfully look forward um, to the church that God is calling us to be and all the ministry that God is calling us to do. And we can celebrate that uh, with joy, that we're going to be a church that is healthy and vibrant and thriving and reaching our community and the world with the gospel. Um, so let, join with me uh, in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And as they are speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do to these men? For, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. 
For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, to the, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through them. Uh, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our church. I thank you that uh, we can be a body of believers who gather together to worship you and who gather together to, to open up your word to hear what you have to say to us and to apply it to our lives. God, thank you for the, the ministry that you have for our church. And thank you for the, the bright future that is ahead for us. I pray, Father, this morning that as we, as we read and hear your word, God, that we would have ears to hear it and a heart that is ready to apply your word to our lives so that we can become the church that you're calling us to be. God, give us a, a passion for you and a passion to, to, to look like you, to uh, to have our thoughts and our actions shaped and molded by you. God, let us be the church that you're calling us to be. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, football is back. Um, some of you, that is uh, really exciting. Some of you couldn't care less, and that's fine. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, the NFL, this is uh, the second week of the NFL season. The college football has been on for a few weeks, and uh, as, you can pro as you can tell um, from conversations we've had in the past and also by my shirt, like I'm an Aggie. I'm a, I'm a fan of Texas A&M football, uh, and so I love watching uh, the Aggies play. Uh, we're actually 3-0 we're and to start the year, which is great. But, um, but at this point in the season in college football, a lot of big-name teams schedule cupcake games. So they're, they're called cupcake games, games against uh, teams that are not very good. Right? They kind of boost their confidence. They kind of uh, get are able to work out all of the kinks in their offense and their defense in a game that's not really close, in a game that's not going to, you know, where you can make some mistakes and overcome them. And so, uh, for example, A&M, uh, we've had three uh, supposedly cupcake games. The second one was close, but the, uh, we've had three cupcake games so far. We started with Kent State was our very first game, which is a big school in Ohio, not known for football. So we... Uh, so we got to play them and crushed them. I, I, I think it was 42 to 10, I think was the final score. So it was, uh, it's a cupcake game. And if you're watching your college football team, whatever it is, uh, you're watching the team that you love and they're playing cupcake games, you are feeling amazing about the season. Like you are thrilled because your team, unless your team loses that cupcake game, then you're not thrilled. But if, you're, if your team is steamrolling these uh, junior colleges, like you're, you're going to be so excited uh, because your team looks good. Right, like the the offense is rolling, the defense can't uh, is getting off the field, and so you're excited about the team because it's 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 steamrolling these these teams that they're playing. Well, the problem is, uh, same thing with the Aggies, uh, you haven't faced any real opposition yet. 
So you don't actually know what the future has in store for your team because you haven't faced any opposition. You've, you've only played cupcake games. Well, at the early church, you could not have asked for a better rollout, right? You could not have asked for a better launch for the early church. I mean, the Holy Spirit descends uh, upon the, the disciples. Peter gets up and he preaches a message and 3,000 people get saved. Well, you can't ask for a better launch than that, right? And then they gather together as a body of believers and they, uh, they act differently than the world. Like they're sharing things among them. Uh, they are caring for each other. They are uh, spending time in the Word. They're spending time in prayer. Like they are, they are a healthy, vibrant, thriving body of believers. And you can't ask for a better launch than that. And then to top it all off, you have something like, like Peter and John going to the temple and healing a guy who's been crippled since birth. Like things like that are happening. So this this is a great launch for the church. And so if you're listening and you're watching the history of the church play out at this point, it's like a bunch of cupcake games, right? These are, this is, you couldn't have asked for anything better. You're just steamrolling anything that comes in their way. They're rocking and rolling as an early church. And so they're confident, they're excited, but the problem is they haven't faced any real opposition. The, the start of the church was great, but nothing has come against them yet. And so you don't know what's going to happen to this church, this new burgeoning movement, because nothing has come against them. But that changes when Peter and John heal this crippled man. Like that, that miracle that we talked about last week, when Peter and John go to the temple, and by the name of, in the name of Jesus, they heal this man who had been crippled since birth. This is the first real test for the early church. It's the first real moment that they faced opposition. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So this miracle is performed. Peter gives a, a sermon explaining the miracle, explaining what we're supposed to believe and think about Jesus because of the miracle. And again, a great reception, right? We see that in verse 4. People come to know Jesus. People place their faith in Christ. The, the number of the church grows to 5,000. Like, this is still a great start. But in the middle of that, you have this first rule opposition where Peter and John are in the temple. They've just healed this guy. Uh, and this guy who had never walked in his life is running and leaping and celebrating and praising God and the whole crowds are watching them and, and the whole crowds are amazed at what's going on. Well, the religious leaders and the teachers, the people in the temple, they came and they swooped in and they arrested Peter and John. Because they weren't happy that Peter and John were stealing their fame. <laughs> they weren't happy that Peter and John had, had come in and were causing this commotion, this stir in the temple. And they weren't happy that Peter and John were proclaiming the name of Jesus because they hate Jesus. This is the same group of religious leaders who crucified Jesus just a few months before. And here are Peter and John performing a miracle in the temple, uh, proclaiming the name of Jesus. Everyone's excited. People are coming to know Christ. And so these religious leaders decide to put an end to it. They come in and they arrest Peter and John. They put him in jail. Now that is a, a startling uh, moment of opposition against the early church, right? I, up to this point, Everything is rocking and rolling. Like, the church is doing amazing. You couldn't have asked for anything better. And here, now Peter and John, two of the apostles, in fact, Peter, the most vocal apostle to this point, are thrown in jail, and there's no telling what's going to happen. I mean, we 
as uh, Christians living in the 21st century, we hear a lot, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard stories, a lot of Christians being uh, imprisoned and martyred. Um, we'll get to more of those in the book of Acts as we continue along in the book, but, um, but this was new to them. Like Prior to this moment, there was no opposition to the early church. And this is the first real moment where something happens against the church. And Peter and John are thrown into prison, and nobody knows how it's going to play out. Nobody knows what it's going to do to the church. Nobody knows what it's going to do uh, to the apostles. And Peter and John are thrown in jail. And you can imagine what's going on in, uh, in their friend group, in the apostles, in the disciples. Like, you can imagine what this is doing to the Christians. Because here, these pillars of the church are in prison. And they're just getting started. Like they're, they're just at the outset. These are two of the 12 apostles. And, and right here at the beginning, two of those 12 are thrown in jail. And you can imagine what this is doing to Peter and John as well. Like they have all of this ministry in front of them, right? They have all these, these hopes and dreams of what God is going to do through them in the name of Jesus. And here they are in prison, completely unsure of how it's going to play out. We have the benefit of hindsight with the benefit of the rest of the text to know how it plays out, but they didn't. And you can imagine, they were thrown in prison in the evening, and they were left there till the next day because it was already evening, so they couldn't co convene a trial. And so they're sitting in a prison overnight completely unsure about what their future is. It's not like they were cast in prison for like starting a riot, and they're going to get a little slap on the wrist and then get released. They were thrown in prison by the people that crucified Jesus. Like, like the same people that handed Jesus over to be nailed to a cross. So there's no telling what's going to happen to Peter and John. And they're stuck overnight thinking about it as they're stuck in this prison. And the rest of the church is stuck thinking about it as Peter and John are stuck in this prison. And there's this first real taste of opposition for the church. So what happens when the church faces opposition? Well, next we see in verse 5, uh, this continued opposition. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the high priestly family. And when they set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So the, the priestly family, the most powerful, influential family in, in Jerusalem, uh, and arguably in all of Judea, uh, this powerful family and all of the religious leaders, they gather together, they pull Peter and John in, and they start to interrogate them. And they start to question them, and they say, by whose name, by what power did you do this? Did you perform this miracle? Did you heal this guy? And this question is a trap. Like it, has, it has all the makings of a trap. Because they were arrested in the first place because they were proclaiming the name of Jesus. The reason they were thrown in prison is because they had already said, it's by the name of Jesus, that this miracle had taken place. And, and it was that proclamation of the name of Jesus that infuriated the religious leaders and caused them to throw these guys in prison. So when they bring these guys in front of them, they're not asking like they want to know. They're not asking like, hey, can you go ahead and clue us in? Because we didn't, we didn't know. Like, by what name did you do this? They're asking because if they say the name of Jesus, that will infuriate the religious leaders. They're asking because if they say that they did this in the name of Jesus, then what, what the apostles are doing is proclaiming a name that the religious leaders hate. And they're proclaiming the name of a guy that the religious leaders 
crucified for what they thought was blasphemy. So this is a trap for Peter and John. Because if they say that they did this in the name of Jesus, there's no telling what the religious leaders are going to do to them. If they say that they did this in the name of Christ, then the, the religious leaders could, could punish them, they, they could harm them, they could throw them in prison and leave them there, or they could kill them, hand them over to the Romans. They did it just a few months before with Jesus. And so they set up this trap, and they say, Who, by whose name did you do this? By whose name and by whose power did you perform this miracle? And they put the ball in Peter and John's court. And Peter and John have the opportunity to say whatever they want. And the whole, the whole point of this trap is to, to, to offer Peter and John the opportunity to denounce Jesus and to put an end to all of this. So what happens when the church faces opposition? What happens when for the very first time disciples of Christ, the apostles, face opposition? Well, we see in verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them. So I want to I stop there for a second. What happens when Peter and John face opposition, when the church faces opposition, is that the Holy Spirit empowers them. Like everything that's going to happen after this has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we can't uh, take what happens and what's said after this uh, without recognizing that it is the Holy Spirit that is empowering what's about to take place. So when they face opposition, the Holy Spirit empowers this next encounter uh, when Peter says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there, is no, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the religious leaders set up the trap, and they say, by whose name did you perform this miracle? By whose name is this guy healed? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is empowered by the Holy Spirit to respond with boldness and to proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus. Like his answer was a bold proclamation of Jesus Christ. He could have said anything and gotten himself off the hook, but here he is, standing in front of the religious leaders who could punish him, who could harm him, who could torture him, who could kill him, and he says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this guy was healed. And in case we're unclear about which Jesus we're talking about, it's the one you murdered. Like, it's the one that you crucified, and it's the one who's raised from the dead. Talk about something that would infuriate the religious leaders. That they didn't just say it was by the name of Jesus, but it's the name of Jesus who was murdered, but then was raised to life by God. Something that they don't believe, and something that they don't, uh, that they don't enjoy the disciples talking about, because they put him to death for what they thought was blasphemy. But Peter is standing there in all boldness saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the guy you killed, but the guy God raised, he's the one who did this. And it's in his name that this guy has been healed. And the reason that he brings up the crucifixion and the resurrection is not because he's trying to wag his finger at the religious leaders like the guy that you murdered, but because he can't proclaim the gospel without proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like he can't proclaim salvation in Christ without 
acknowledging the fact that Jesus is alive today. So he stands before them and with all boldness says, it's in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who was raised from the dead, that this guy has been healed. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now that's a, that's a reference to Old Testament text that you'll see a lot uh, in the book of Acts and other times in the, New, in the New Testament. But he's making the point that this is the Jesus that's been prophesied about, that, that God said way beforehand that you guys were going to reject. And, and so I'm, I'm, he's making the point. This isn't a, again, this isn't a wagging his finger in a, a, really, excuse me, a really negative moment. What he's doing is proclaiming the, the hope, saying that this, this Jesus had been prophesied about. This is the Messiah, the one who is the cornerstone, the one who has come to bring salvation. And he goes on with the good news. He says, there is salvation in no one else. And for there is no other name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved. So with all boldness, Peter stands up and he says, it's, it's in the name of Jesus that this guy was healed. And it's in the name of Jesus that you can have salvation. It's in the name of Jesus that this guy who's been crippled from birth can walk. And it's in the name of Jesus that you can be saved. And in nothing else. So to the group of religious leaders who would already have told you that they were saved, <laughs> a group of religious leaders who felt confident in their relationship with God because they checked off all the boxes because they did all of the right things, to the group of religious leaders, Peter responds boldly, saying it's in the name of Jesus that you can be saved. When faced with opposition, the Holy Spirit empowered Peter to boldly proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. He didn't escape it. He didn't get out of it. He didn't say, well, you know, it's, we had some, uh, the guy was faking. You know, like he didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't try to escape it. Uh, he didn't say, oh, it was by the, uh, by the power of the Sanhedrin or the, the power of the Sadducees or the Pharisees. That, we, that this guy was able to be healed. He didn't try to say something that would get him off the hook. The Holy Spirit empowered Peter to respond boldly and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Then we go on. That's not the end of the story. In verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now I want to say, uh, like they, they recognized the situation. The, the religious leaders, know, they're taking stock of the situation. They realize Peter and John are responding with this boldness, and they're not educated. It's not like they... They have earned the right to respond really boldly uh, to these highly powerful people. It's not like they're somehow really influential, powerful people, too. Like these are uneducated, common men, and they are responding boldly when faced with opposition from these religious and influential people. And says they recognize that they'd been with Jesus. Now, uh, this is a verse that I've heard a lot, uh, taken out of context, where uh, you can read this passage, uh, and I've been told several times, uh, by preachers, they'll say, um, they'll read the passage and they'll say, the way that you respond to opposition should, should point people to the fact that you've been with Jesus. You know, they make this this really fun, uh, happy moment where like, just, just the way that you love other people should point them, they should know that you've been with Jesus. What, what this is uh, actually talking about is the fact that the apostles had actually been with Jesus. Like they, they were with 
Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. So, so what the religious leaders are doing is they're taking stock of the situation and they realize these guys know what they're talking about because they've been with Jesus. This isn't some third-hand account of some guy that they've never met. Like They are talking about a guy that they spent years with. They have been with Jesus. And they continue to take stock in their situation. In verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So what are they going to say in response to this bold proclamation? Are they going to put them down? Are they going to, to punish them? Are they going to kill them? Because the guy that they healed, the guy who couldn't walk, who's now running and jumping and leaping, is standing right beside Peter and John. And all of the crowds, the whole audience, everybody is amazed by this and celebrating and praising God. And so they're looking at this and they're like, we can't do anything right now. Like We can't, we can't kill them. We can't th- keep them in prison. We can't torture them for this because everybody here loves these guys. Everybody here knows that a miracle is performed. Everybody here can see the guy walking. Um, so this is, we can't do anything right now. They're taking stock of their situation. In verse 15, they commanded Peter and John to leave the council, and they began to talk with one another, saying in verse 16, what are we going to do to these guys? Like for, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So what happens is the church, uh, Peter and John, they face this first opposition for the church, like this first moment of opposition, and the religious leaders take stock of their situation and they realize we can't do anything to them today. Like we can't punish them, we can't torture them, we can't kill them because the crowd is on their side. So what they do is they gather together and they say we can't let this spread, so what we're going to do is we're going to threaten them with future opposition if they continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. So now, not only does the church face this immediate opposition, but they have this cloud of future opposition over them. Like this isn't some verbal warning to say, hey, next time you'll get a ticket. Like this, is, this is a real threat that are underlining uh, these charges and these commands from the religious leaders. What we can kind of read between the lines here is that the religious leaders call back in Peter and John and they say, if you do this again, we'll kill you. If you do this again, we will imprison you. If you do this again, we'll torture you. They're hurling threats at Peter and John saying, you better not proclaim the name of Jesus ever again. Because if I ever hear you proclaiming the name of Jesus, you will be imprisoned, you will be tortured, you will be killed. And so now the church has this this cloud of future opposition hanging over it. It's not this one moment that they've overcome, but now it's everybody is going to be affected by this. Now it's not just Peter and John's lives hanging in the balance. It's every disciple of Christ. It's every apostle. It's every Christian. It's those 5,000 men that had, be, that had accepted Christ and gathered together. Every single one of them had their livelihoods and their lives threatened by this, this future opposition. So again, what happens when the church of God is facing opposition? What happens when this cloud of animosity and this cloud, this, this threatening cloud of enmity is hanging over the church? What happens? We can read in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen 
and heard. They respond, and they say, do, what, do whatever you want <laughs> to us. Treat us however you want, because what ultimately matters is not what you say, but what God says. The command in our lives, your, your command to tell us not to speak is less important than God's command to tell us to boldly proclaim the gospel. And so we can't help but boldly proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ because that's what we've seen and that's what we know. And that is way more important than our livelihoods or our lives. And so they respond with boldness saying, we cannot speak uh, but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when, they had, when the religious leaders further threatened them, verse 21, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man to whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So again, they knew the situation. They knew they couldn't punish him today. This guy had spent 40 years on a mat. Like he could never walk. Now he's leaping and walking and running. Uh, and so they can't, they can't punish him today. But they threaten this future punishment. So Peter and John are released in verse 23. They go to their friends. They go to the fellow believers. They go to the apostles. And they report what the chief priests and the elders said to them. So again, they have this, this cloud of opposition over them. And this is not like some trivial matter. The, the way that Peter and John respond can make us, uh, we, you know, we can be all uh, brimming with pride and, and make this seem like a light matter, but it's not. Like they, they have genuine threat of persecution hanging over their head if they proclaim the name of Jesus. And this is a, this is a big deal. So Peter and John, they go to the church and say, hey, this is what the chief priests and the elders said. The religious leaders told us, if you proclaim the name of Jesus, they will harm us and they will kill us. And they're letting the church know that's, that is for you as well. Like the, Every single one of us has this threat of opposition hanging over our heads. So what does the church do in response to opposition? We can see in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they go to the Lord in prayer, and they quote this psalm, which points out how empty and futile the threats are uh, that they face. And they, they, they pray to God, and they realize they mean business. Like This is something that you prophesied long before, that, that the Gentiles, that the rulers of the, the world, that these religious leaders, that they would come against Jesus, and that they would persecute him, and that they would kill him. Like, you, you already knew that ahead of time. And we've seen it take place, that these religious leaders who are threatening us now, they threatened Jesus, they handed him over, and they had him crucified. And all of that was part of your plan. All of, you, you were in control and sovereign over all of that. And, and you can see in that psalm that, that David wrote, the, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. Like, there's an emptiness inherently, uh, an eternal emptiness in the and the plans that the enemy has against the church, against Jesus Christ. So they're pointing out the fact that Jesus was going to face opposition. Jesus faced opposition. Jesus died. But it was all part of God's plan. He rose again to provide salvation. And then they 
transfer that to themselves. Saying verse 29, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So how does the church respond when facing opposition? They get on their knees and they pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel. They get on their knees and they pray for boldness to continue to proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus. They don't pray that the opposition would go away. They don't pray that they would stop facing persecution. They, they get on their knees and they recognize that the only thing that matters is the salvation in Jesus Christ. So when they gather together to pray, they pray, God, give us boldness to keep proclaiming the gospel no matter what comes our way. Give us a boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus as we go. We're not going to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. We're not going to stop proclaiming salvation in Jesus Christ because that's true. Because there's salvation in Jesus Christ and there's not salvation in anything else in the world. And so we know that. We're carriers of that message. So God, give us boldness to continue to proclaim it when opposition comes our way. God answers the prayer in verse 31. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Holy Spirit empowered response to opposition. Isn't retaliation, it's not, uh, it's not avoidance, but it's proclamation. And that's true for us today. The Holy Spirit-empowered response to opposition isn't anger, it's not fear, it is boldness to continue to proclaim the message of the gospel. So many of us have bought into false ideas about persecution and, and the false and incorrect responses to opposition. We are living in a a society that is becoming increasingly post-Christian. We are living in a society that is increasingly antagonistic to Christianity, increasingly antagonistic to the ideas, the values, the, 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 the message of the gospel um, that Christianity proclaims. We live in a society that, that more and more wants to do what they want to do and not what the, the Word of God tells them to do. And so we, for so many years in the United States, I've had the incredible privilege for centuries um, to live in a society that was uh, kind of built upon and loved uh, and cherished some Judeo-Christian morals and values. Uh, but that is uh, increasingly not the case. But the way that so many Christians have responded and the way so many of us have responded is with uh, this retaliation. Like our pre-programmed response to opposition has been anger, has been retaliation. It's been to say how many guns we have and say, come try to oppress me. Like, come, come try to oppose me. It's been to a, a call to take up arms and to, to, to combat militantly this opposition. And that's our response so many times to opposition is, hey, I'm not going to let somebody step on my rights. I'm not going to let somebody persecute me. And so our response, our kind of gut response to opposition is retaliation, it's anger. But on the flip side, so many people respond with avoidance. Like, where can I go? What can I do to, to avoid opposition? What can I do to avoid persecution? Now, this is 
something that took place a lot uh, in, in the early days uh, of the church in the Roman Empire when they really started facing persecution the first couple centuries of the church. Um, when, the, when the Roman government really cracked down on Christianity, um, they forced a lot of the Christians to either uh, give up the name of Jesus and to give an offering to Caesar or to be killed. And there were a lot of Christians who gave up the name of Jesus and gave an offering to Caesar so that they could avoid martyrdom. And they later came back and they proclaimed the name of Jesus and they're forgiven by the grace of God, but, but their gut reaction, their response to opposition was avoidance and to, to, to get away from it. Now, now hear me. There's nothing in the, in the Bible, there's nothing in the literature of the early church that ever, uh, that ever says you need to run headlong into martyrdom. And there's nothing that ever says you need to go seek out uh, your getting yourself killed by the name of Jesus. In fact, some of the early church writings talk about that. They're like, there's no honor in going and trying to get yourself killed for Christianity. So retaliation and avoidance, I, I don't want to say that by avoiding those two, that we are just accepting and loving opposition and that we are running headlong into martyrdom. <laughs> But our response, our Holy Spirit-empowered response to opposition doesn't need to be anger and fear. It doesn't need to be retaliation or avoidance. It needs to be bold proclamations of the gospel. Like ultimately, what, what ultimately needs to happen is we don't need to change. Is that prior to facing opposition, prior to facing persecution, we need to proclaim the gospel. And when opposition comes, we need to pray for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. Like that's our response to, to opposition. That's our response to persecution. It's to continue to boldly proclaim the gospel. That's how the first application of this idea is to proclaim salvation in Jesus. It's easy to do that today. Like even in a society that is becoming increasingly post-Christian, we are a long ways away from oppressive, violent opposition to Christianity. We do not experience that. No matter, uh, we may feel like we're heading in that direction. Uh, I think we can take honest stock of the situation and realize we're still a long way away from that. So proclaim the gospel. Nobody is holding a gun to your head and, and asking you to forsake Jesus. Like you have the freedom, the political freedom, to go out and to tell people that there is salvation in the name of Jesus. There is no barrier to you going out and to boldly proclaiming that Jesus Christ has the opportunity, has the ability to save people from their sins. Like there is nothing in the way of you proclaiming the gospel, so do it. Proclaim the gospel while it's easy. And if opposition comes, and more and more we face uh, animosity and enemies and anger uh, against Christianity, if, if that comes our way, Pray for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. Pray that, that God will give us the boldness needed to continue to proclaim salvation in Jesus, no matter what comes our way. This morning we're going to sing and we're going to pray. Not in that order. <laughs> we're going to pray and we're going to sing. As we pray and as we sing, I want to give you guys the opportunity to pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Some of us don't proclaim the gospel when it's easy. 
that there is no excuse for us not, not leading people to Jesus while it's easy to do so, while there's no legal barrier to that. So pray that God would give us boldness to proclaim today. And pray that God would give us boldness to proclaim tomorrow. And pray that God will give us boldness to proclaim every day of our life, no matter what comes our way. Because the world needs to know that there's salvation in the name of Jesus. And we have that message. So as we sing, don't, uh, don't immediately get up and sing, but take a moment and pray for boldness, that you would have a boldness to go proclaim the message of the gospel. Some of you this morning hear uh, what I'm talking about, about the salvation in the name of Jesus, this, this gospel message, this good news. And to you, that, that's not real. Like you have never once placed your faith in Jesus and experienced the salvation that comes from his name. So this morning, you don't need to pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel. You need to pray for faith to believe it. This morning, if that's you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'm going to be standing right here as we sing. I would love to talk with you about what it means to have salvation in the name of Jesus, about what it means to experience this good news of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We pray for us this morning and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, the, the gospel is what matters. And the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ is what matters. And we, as the church, have the ability to boldly proclaim the gospel. We have the ability to, to convey life-changing, life-saving truth to a world that desperately needs it. So God, give us boldness to do that. Give us boldness to take that gospel message to our friends, to our family members, to our co-workers. God, let us gather together every week celebrating what has happened because we took the gospel out into our community. Let us baptize and, and see people come to know Jesus because we are carrying that message of the gospel out into the world. Give us a boldness. And as we see opposition approaching, as our world is changing, as our culture is changing, and we are feeling more and more like, like it's not a pretty future for Christians, God, I pray that that wouldn't phase us. And that we wouldn't hunker down and try to figure out how we can fix it, and hunker down and try to figure out how we can retaliate or avoid it, but that we would pray, hit our knees and pray for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel message. Father, we love you. We praise you. It's in the precious holy name of Jesus by which we can be saved that we pray. Amen. Take a moment as we sing, pray for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Or pray for faith to believe in the gospel if you've ever done that. And come talk.